0: That's a place where you and I need to take note, all of us who are in some position of leadership, because how people feel about our elected leaders is how they feel about us as well. If they look at ministers living lifestyles that seem to be lavish, if they're familiar with people that claim to represent Jesus but seem more interested in their own advancement in the gospel and the kingdom, then they have a right to see the hypocrisy in that to see the uh, the misalignment there and they're ultimately they're going to judge Christ by Christians yeah and so that's why we need to not only be holding our leaders to account but ourselves as well
1: Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Dr. Jim Dennison is the founder of the Denison Forum. He has been on our program in the past, and we're trying to work out a schedule where Jim can join us once a month and, and talk about a, a plethora of things that concern us in our walk with Christ as it relates to living in culture and, and the world we're living in today. Dr. Dennison has a forum that reaches hundreds of thousands of people monthly. And he communicates gospel truth in such practical terms. You connect a biblical perspective, sometimes getting threatened. But you address so many things, and we want to welcome you back to the show today, Jim.
0: Uh, Byron, thank you for the privilege. Glad to be on with you today and grateful for what you do and the privilege of the conversation.
1: Well, one of the things we want to talk about, taxes. You do a blog, and each month you'll have something particular you'll emphasize. We wanted to talk about taxes. Of course, April 15th, the traditional day of paying taxes. Taxes, and everybody has that dreaded day, but uh, we know over the last couple of years, specifically last year, we saw a change because of COVID and tax day it had been extended, and then this year again it has been extended through May 17th. This is that dreaded topic, <laughs> Jim, that we want to talk about today. You know, Benjamin Franklin once said, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except for death and taxes, right?
0: Well, that is what he said. In fact, I think there may be more things certain than that, but at the very least, those two. And it's interesting that we see them as maybe being on some level to say death and taxes. Yeah. Well, what does the
1: Bible really say about money? What does the Bible say about death, about taxes? I did a little back research in order to help us understand some of this, and I, I learned some things studying about taxes, especially in our country. To fund the war effort in the American Civil War, Congress imposed its first personal income tax back in 1861. It was part of the revenue tax. Three percent of all incomes over $800 would be taxed. That was rescinded in 1872. Then a new income tax statute was enacted as part of the 1894 Tariff Act. And then the uh, the federal income tax, as we know it, was really officially introduced in 1913. Many of the taxes that we pay today were created in the 1920s and the 1930s, including the estate tax, gift tax, and Social Security taxes. And we can even go back a whole lot further than that to the earthly ministry of Jesus, where he spoke about paying taxes in the
0: Gospels. He did, in fact. It's really kind of a fascinating story, as you know, in Matthew, where Jesus is there at that last week of his ministry, probably on a Tuesday of Holy Week, and uh, the, his opponents are doing their best to trip him up. They're very concerned about the growth of his movement, about the popularity of his movement, If they and they're afraid that the Romans are going to see this movement as threatening the Romans and come in and not only deal with Jesus, but deal with them as well, remove them from their positions. So what they're trying to do is find a way on some level to disenfranchise Jesus without making the without making either the authorities, so the crowd's mad at him. So they ask him this hot-button question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? To you and me, that sounds like a taxation question simply, but it's more than that. There was one specific coin that was used to pay this tax to the emperor. It had the image of the emperor on one side, the image of the goddess of peace on the other. It was idolatrous, obviously. What they're asking Jesus is to weigh in on this very difficult issue. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, then the Romans will see him as a rebel and deal with him. If he says, do pay your taxes, then the Jewish people will see him as idolatrous, and they'll turn away from him. And either way, the authorities win, and Jesus loses. And we know what Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's, making it clear that we're citizens of two countries, but our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord.
1: And it's such a powerful thing when we talk about taxes, it can be a divisive topic. Since 1950, individual income taxes have been the primary source of revenue for the U.S. federal government, together with payroll taxes that help fund programs like Social Security and Medicare. uh, Income taxes amount to roughly 80 percent of all federal revenue and are the essential fuel on which our government runs. But, Jim, what are the potential results of a society being overly taxed by its government?
0: Yeah, certainly, it's on two levels. The first level is uh, on a financial level itself. You get to a place where you get to a law of diminishing returns. You're The more taxes you add, you've seen this in Europe in some places where they're asking for so much tax that people have very little income to live on, and so you see uh, incomes go down, and then the taxation goes down, so then they raise the taxes even further, and it becomes this kind of a vicious cycle. Can happen on a financial level that can have all sorts of deleterious effects relative to the morale of the people, relative to their loyalty to the government, and all that's inside that. Then the other dimension of this is the degree to which you begin thinking about immoral taxation. Taxation to fund those things which we as believers, for instance, consider to be unbiblical. It was the taxation without representation idea that was behind the Boston Tea Party and ultimately, in many ways, the the move for independence in American history. So now we're in a day where we're starting to see debates about taxpayer-funded abortions. We're starting to see a day when perhaps you could see taxpayer-funded gender affirmation therapies and surgeries and taxpayer-funded euthanasia services and things such as that? And what do we do if our taxes are supporting that which we as believers do not support? How do we manage that? How do we parse that? becomes, I think, an ongoing issue in the coming years.
1: And I tell you what, you know, there are some groups who feel that we should not pay taxes as American citizens. Is it wrong for the government to collect taxes from us?
0: Well, you obviously come to Romans 13 where we're told by Paul, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, then you get to verses 6 and 7. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Romans 13, 6 and 7. Justin Martyr, one of the early Christian apologists, made one of the central arguments in defense of Christianity, the fact that Christians make good citizens. The Christians pay, pray for the emperor, as First Timothy 2 requires. The Christians pay their taxes. The Christians are loyal uh, to the government as long as they can do so and still be loyal to Jesus. So I believe there's a witness involved as well as the biblical demand that we pay taxes to the government so long as we can do that and still be loyal to Jesus.
1: You know, Jim, I think that part gets often overlooked. Authorities are ministers of God. You know, we don't look at our leaders in those positions as actually ministers of God.
0: We obviously don't, and often don't. And you're exactly right, Brian, to make that point, because Paul's saying this about Nero. Paul's not saying this about a Roman emperor with whom we would agree. These are not godly evangelical Christians we're talking about here. We're talking about some of the most cruel, despotic leaders in history. And yet Paul can say about them positionally, if not personally, that they are ministers of God, attending to the very thing. That, in fact, God is using their position to advance his kingdom, even at the time it doesn't seem that that could be possible. Yes. So again, at the end of the day, we want to be loyal to the authority so long as we can still be loyal to Jesus.
1: Well, Well, as you say, the word says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We should be careful of having scornful attitudes toward our government. Oftentimes, you know, the table conversation when we talk negatively about our government.
0: That's absolutely true on so many levels, isn't it? We're required by Matthew 18, 15, if my brother sins against me, I'm to go to him. If he won't hear me, I bring two or three others. If he won't hear them, we go to the church. In other words, Brian, I'm not allowed to say about you what I won't say to you. Imagine how different our culture would be if everybody obeyed Matthew 18:15, starting with believers. I am not allowed to say about our president or about our governor, or about our mayor or our city council, or about celebrities or about athletes or about anybody. I'm not allowed to say about them what I wouldn't say to them. That's at the heart of Christian witness and ministry and how different we will be in our culture if everybody obeys that.
1: You know, I think, too, Jim, it makes a great point about how we, having the freedom as Americans, that we do have representation, we do vote people in office to represent us, so we oftentimes complain without respectfully contacting these who represent us and let them know. I've heard representatives say, if I would just hear more from my constituents, they'll hear from those who we disagree with, but oftentimes they don't hear from our voice, our conservative voice.
0: I am so glad you said that. I couldn't reinforce that enough. Over the years as a pastor, I've been privileged to pastor a number of people that were in elected service, and they'll tell me exactly what you just said, that they often hear from the extremes rather than the broad middle or constituents, and certainly not often enough from the church and believers. And then they'll make this point that I thought was really interesting the first time I heard it. They said, we weigh on a factor of one to maybe a thousand when we get a letter or an email or a phone call, that for every person that'll say something, there may be a thousand that believe that that don't say that, or even 10,000 that don't say that, which means that your email, your letter has an outsized influence on your representative. You may be thinking, what difference does one letter make? What difference does one email or one phone call? Well, what I've been told is it makes an enormous difference. And as you say, that's the privilege of a participatory democracy. Challenge being, we have to participate.
1: Oh my goodness, Jim, we have got to participate. That's so vital. That's a good word. We know 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peace peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So is that really the key for us leading peaceful and quiet life in this world?
0: It absolutely is. And this conversation links up at that very point. It's harder for me to slander people for whom I'm praying. It's harder for me to be negative toward those people for whom I'm praying. And so even when I see difficulties, when I see places where I disagree with them, Oswald Chambers says that discernment is not used for fault-finding but for intercession. The purpose of discernment is to intercede. So if I see something in the news today with which I disagree relative to the Biden administration or local governance or whatever, my first responsibility is to pray. And when I pray, then I ask God, now, Lord, what do I do to answer my prayers? Whether it's an email or a phone call, whether it's something else I might do to participate in this process. And when I do that, I'm leading an orderly and peaceful life. When I do that, I'm contributing to the common good, and I'm demonstrating that Christians make good citizens, and I'm reinforcing my witness as a follower of Jesus.
1: You know, Jim, we read the Gospels and we hear about these despised tax collectors. Zacchaeus was one of the chief tax collectors that was extremely rich, but Jesus called him to have supper with him and into a relationship. Talk about tax conditions in Jesus' day. They were quite different than what we see today.
0: Absolutely. And then you think of Matthew, who wrote the first gospel we find in our New Testament. Maybe not the first chronologically, but the one that bridges the Old Testament to the New Testament. We have the Sermon on the Mount because of Matthew. We have so much because of Matthew, who was himself a tax collector as well. So in the Roman Empire, the first thing early in the Roman Empire, they began expanding outside of Italy and the confines of Rome, and they would begin taking in and conquering new peoples. They did so primarily in order to be able to tax them. So they would bring Roman citizens, Roman soldiers, into these new places to tax the people. They found that to be very inefficient. They didn't know the language, didn't know the customs, didn't know the culture, didn't know where people were hiding their money, weren't able to do that effectively. So they shifted gears. They could always find someone who lived in that city, that community, that Capernaum, for instance, or that Jericho, in the case of Zacchaeus, who was local, who knew the customs, knew the people, knew the language, all of that. They could hire them as turncoats. To tax the local people for the sake of the Roman Empire, and the benefit to them, since they were essentially going to be social pariahs, was that they could add to what Rome required whatever they wanted to for themselves. It was a reinforced kind of graft and corruption on a massive scale. And the Roman Empire would then protect the tax collector, the soldiers would protect the tax collector, as he charged over and above what the Romans charged in order to be able to make enough money to be incentivized to do this. It would be as though back in World War II, the Nazis were able to get Jewish rabbis to tax Jewish people in communes, let's say, or in ghettos and send the money back to Hitler. It was exactly that kind of a psychology. So that's why these tax collectors on one level were so despised is they were turncoats against their own people. On the second level, their taxation, what they were doing was so outrageous. There are examples of tax collectors stopping you as you're coming into town and and taxing you on your horse, taxing you on your cart, taxing you on every wheel of the cart, the axles of the cart, everything in the cart, exorbitant rates, and getting away with it because the Roman Empire and the soldiers were there to protect them. That's why tax collectors were so despised all across the Roman Empire, quite frankly. We have this story of, I think it was Cicero that said he saw a monument to an honest tax collector. That's how unique and unusual they were.
1: Oh, my goodness. What do you believe Jesus saw in Zacchaeus?
0: It's on two levels. Jesus was always, as Paul did, as Peter did, was always a great economist. He was always wanting to be efficient and effective. He would always call influencers so that through their influence, the kingdom could multiply That's why he called Peter and Andrew, James and John, some of the leading businessmen in Capernaum and one of the leading business centers of all of Galilee to follow him because he wanted leaders, he wanted influencers. Well, here's Zacchaeus, one of the wealthiest people in Jericho, one of the most notorious people in Jericho. If he could be brought to the gospel, if he could be brought to Jesus, think of the implications, the ramification, the multiplying of that, the impact of that as is described in Luke 19. It was something Billy Graham would do when he would go into a community to to conduct what they used to call crusades, and then missions, he would ask, who are the local people who, if they came to Christ, would make a huge impact? There are stories from the 19 uh, late 1940s with the Billy Graham Crusade in Los Angeles that really, in many ways, put them on the map. How there were some celebrities in that day and even some mom figures who came to Christ through that crusade, and that made an enormous difference in the larger culture as people saw that. I'm familiar with youth ministries that always target the high school quarterback or the cheerleaders or the president of the student council, believing that if they'll come to Christ, their impact will we'll multiply the gospel out. So that's one side. The other side is that he is his own soul. Here's a man who knows how corrupt he is. He knows how criminal he is. He is not allowed to go to the synagogue, not allowed to go to the temple, not allowed to participate in the religious life. Of he's, an he's, a tax collector. he's an outcast. He's an outcast. And he thinks he's an outcast from God. Because he's an outcast from the temple in the synagogue, he could never imagine having a relationship with God. Jesus went to him because Zacchaeus would never come to God, well, So God came to him. It's an example of the gospel, isn't it? it Religion oh, so, climb yeah. up to God, Christianity, God climbs down to us.
1: Such a beautiful picture, an example of God reaching into the separated, dark lostness of our souls and captivating us by his mercy and his love and his forgiveness.
0: And then the transformation on the other side is Zacchaeus does exactly what the Old Testament requires and restores all that he has stolen fourfold, even more than what the Old Testament requires, even more than what the law requires, so as to demonstrate the difference grace has made in his life.
1: Oh, yeah, that's such a beautiful story and a reminder of what's available in the forgiveness and mercy of Christ. Well, today's public opinion of our elected officials and agencies, like the IRS, is so scrutinized. It's difficult when we see government leaders living lavish lifestyles at the expense of taxpayers.
0: It is. And that's a place where you and I need to take note, all of us who are in some position of leadership, because how people feel about our elected leaders is how they feel about us as well. If they look at ministers living lifestyles that seem to be lavish, if they're familiar with people that claim to represent Jesus but seem more interested in their own advancement in the gospel and the kingdom, then they have a right to see the hypocrisy in that, to see the uh, the misalignment there, and they're ultimately they're going to judge Christ by Christians. Yeah. And so that's why we need to not only be holding our leaders to account, but ourselves as well.
1: Well, you mentioned a moment ago about the verse in Matthew 22 where Jesus' approach by the Pharisees asking, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then, as Paul communicates, our responsibility as being citizens and really ambassadors, living as ambassadors for Christ. Can you clarify a little bit about what the image of our citizenship is when we're called to be ambassadors of Christ in this world?
0: It's a wonderful model, isn't it? A very powerful model as well. When we're familiar with an ambassador, let's say the American ambassador to Great Britain, let's just say, for example, you think back to the days of Benjamin Franklin being in that role, or Thomas Jefferson in France, or whatever. So if I'm an ambassador from the United States, I've been appointed ambassador to Great Britain, which I would love to do, by the way. I love (laughs) the British. I'm an Anglophile. If there were two of me, one of me would try to live there. would love to speak with a British accent. You just sound so much more dignified, you know. (laughs) So would love that. So let's say I'm an ambassador to Great Britain. Well, that means several things. It means first of all, that I'm there on the authority of the government, not my own. All I'm there to do is to represent the government and say what my government says, what the president says and what our elected leaders say. I have no intrinsic authority. I only have the authority of the one that is appointed me. Second, I'm to be connected with the culture in which I am embedded as a representative. I'm to learn the language, the customs, the, the culture, the issues of the day so that I can make my government relevant to that foreign land. But third, I'm always to remember that I'm not home that I'm in a foreign land, that I'm in a foreign territory, and one day I'll be called home. Well, that's what we understand. We represent Jesus. We're to understand the culture so we can be salt and light more effectively, but this is not our home. Ultimately, one day we're called home, and that's the hope for which we live.
1: That is the hope, Jim, in which we live. That's something that we've got to keep in the forefront, you know, as we look at living life in this life as believers of Christ. Well, what do we discover about our spiritual relationship when looking at our financial loyalties with what we owe in taxes and that what we keep for ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. That's one of the reasons I wrote the papers because of a statement by C.S. Lewis who said, we look at our relationship to charitable giving as though honest taxpayers, we pay our tax, but we certainly hope there's money left over to do what we want. That's how I'm afraid I look at my relationship with God. It's a transactional business, kind of what you see in the Greco-Roman like world where you had all of these gods. And if you're going to war, you sacrifice to the God of war. If you need wisdom, you sacrifice to the God of wisdom. And you place a sacrifice on the altar so the God will do what you want. Well, that's our transactional religion in our culture, I'm afraid. Go to church on Sunday so God will bless me on Monday. Start the day in prayer so God will bless my day. Read the Bible so God will guide me. All of this transaction, what the Lord wants is a transformational relationship. 24-7, 365, all in. That relates specifically to finance and your question in the context that God owns all that is. It's not that I'm giving God out of what I have all that I have belongs to him. He cares about what I keep as much as what I give. He cares about the private, just like he does the public. When I'm giving to God, it's a little like my kids when they were growing up who would borrow money from me to buy me a birthday present. I love the fact that they did that, but I would never think that I was to the good on the transaction. All that we have belongs to the one who owns it, who created it, who's loaned it to us to manage as stewards for his glory.
1: And it's really that unconditional commitment to Jesus Christ as our King and Lord that he's looking for. This is the relationship that he's looking for from us.
0: That's right. And that's what most honors and glorifies him. And quite frankly, that's what positions us to be most blessed. None of us earns his love. We're saved by grace through faith. But this kind of unconditional commitment we're describing positions us to be led by the one uh, whose uh, will is good, pleasing, and perfect. It positions us to receive the healing, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy that he can give. A carpenter can only shape the wood he can touch. A doctor can only operate on those who will submit to to the surgery. A pilot can only fly you if you'll get on the airplane. God can only bless those parts of our lives that are submitted to him. Imagine a marriage where you only work on the marriage as often as you're at church imagine a job where you only work as often as you're on a church campus. That's the way a lot of us, unfortunately, have this transactional relationship with God. Check the God box at the start of the day and then go on about your day and trust that God will bless you when you ask him to. Kind of a genie and a left. Wow. He wants an unconditional, surrendered relationship to the power of the Spirit so that he can lead us, guide us, and bless us and give us his best.
1: You know, my pastor yesterday was discussing faith. The analogy he used was a hammock. He said, there's people who like hammocks and don't like hammocks. He said, I have a hard time personally getting into a hammock because I don't trust the material, the rope or the trees they're connected to. But there's some people who just jump right in without any problem. And compared that to the biblical word faith, and that's what faith is, is being all in, like giving all rest into that hammock, trusting that it's going to hold you and keep you there without falling. And it's not having one leg hanging over the side, so if you start to fall, you trust completely. Your all is in Christ, and it's no effort on our own that we're trusting for that relationship with Him.
0: It's a great model. It's a wonderful example, isn't it? Uh, in the Latin, there's the difference between a sensus and fiducia. A sensus is assenting uh, intellectually. The Bible says the devils believe and tremble. It's one thing to have intellectual belief that God exists, or even that Jesus died for your sins and that God loves you. It's another thing to have fiducia, which is dependent faith. It's sitting in the chair, it's laying in the hammock, it's getting on the airplane. The funny thing in our culture is we cannot just have this idea that I'm only going to trust that which I understand. We do that in no other part of our lives. I don't understand how airplanes can stay in the air. If I'm too heavy to fly, how do they fly? I have no idea how we're using this technology by which we're having this conversation. I didn't check the load-bearing dynamics of the chair I sat in this morning, but when we come to God, we want him to answer all our questions, even though his ways are higher than ours and his thoughts higher than ours. There's no way my finite fallen mind can understand his perfect omnipotence and omniscience by definition. But we want God to explain the hammock before we lay in it. We want God, we want to be able to test it out before we get in it. We do that in no other dimension of our lives. I'm not suggesting that we live an untested life at all. I think we definitely want to be testing and thinking and using our minds as best we can. But then we take a step beyond what we understand to what we experience. Faith is a relationship. Relationships, at the end of the day, can't be proven, only experienced. If my wife needed me to prove I'd be a good husband, she'd have never married me. (laughs) If I had to prove I'd be a good father, I'd never have kids. You test it out. You investigate. But then you step beyond what you can understand to what you can experience.
1: Oh, that is a great word there, Jim. Well, as we wrap up the show today, I want to kind of revisit this idea of our really stewardship responsibility of it all belonging to God. And we're just stewards of what he gives us when it comes to the monies that we have, the taxes that we pay. And I was just reminded of the early church. In Acts, it talks about the early church had all things in common. And really, they were living in some desperate political times, too, as the church was forming in those days. Talked about them selling goods to help provide for the body. And I'm not suggesting we're at a place like that right now, but I do want to bring out the point that we need to be mindful of our brothers and sisters who might be going through difficult times right now due to COVID, due to loss of jobs. Maybe there's ways that we can help pay a light bill or reach out and and see that those resources that we have can be used to bless others.
0: Absolutely. I love that place at the end of Matthew 9 where Jesus calls his disciples to pray for the Lord to send out harvesters into the field. Then you turn the chapter to chapter 10, and he's sending them out as the answer to their prayers. I remember Charles Spurgeon some years ago, many years ago, obviously, was invited to a prayer meeting as they were, he was supposed to be there to raise funds for a new orphanage. He walks in the room, he sees all the people of wealth and means in the room as they're praying for God to provide these funds, and he says, I'm not going to pray for this. You already have the means in this room to be the answer to your prayers. So we pray for those in need, obviously, of course we do. We're called by Scripture, but then as we do, we need to be praying, Lord, how can I answer my prayer? How can I be that means? Have you entrusted me with means that I'm to be giving to those in need as an expression of your grace?
1: Yeah. And in relation to these taxes, you know, some people get a tax return. There's good reason to use that for family needs, maybe to pay off some debt. I would encourage you to do that. But if you're in a place where you can, instead of thinking about buying a a larger television, you know, or putting it into something for yourself, you might decide to tie the portion of that to the homeless shelter or give it. To a neighbor that has lost a job, you know, find practical ways that you might be able to bless somebody as God gives to you. Well, Jim, this has been great. The Denison Forum is doing incredible work. For our friends to find out more about what you do, Jim, what can they do?
0: Thanks for the privilege of conversation, D-E-B-O-R-G. Our website is the place to start, Denison Forum, D-E-N-I-S-O-N forum dot I write an article every morning based on that day's news that goes out to 300,000 subscribers. It's a podcast. It's a video, about 2.2 million in total audience. And then I write white papers, such as the one we've been discussing in a lot of books, articles, other content. And the website's there. All the digital content is free. So DenisonForum.org.
1: Dr. Jim Dennison, it's our pleasure to have you on today's show.
0: Thank you so much, my friend.
1: Friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.